share. This is right next to the, on the wall, right next to my bed. This is the psalm I have up. I've been working on learning it for a while. <laughs> it's typically what I read before I go to sleep and kind of been working on it. And the other night as I was reading through it, I got to the end of it and I was thinking, thinking about it and really kind of pausing. But I want to read this to you here. It says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works, in giving them the heritage of the nations. The work of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Heavenly Father, ask now that you will help me to be out of the way. Lord, help each of us to focus on you. And Lord, just in this time of worship and preaching and reflection, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you and show us how to do it on a more regular basis. In your name, amen. Um. I like Wednesday nights. Always, we grew up. The pastor used to say, "I like to keep it kind of brief on a Wednesday night because I know everybody's tired from the work, but I want to give you a word of encouragement to get through." So, with that in mind, I kind of I said earlier when we came in, I was like, "I kind of wish tonight was chairs because I kind of sit around more in a group, you know, rather than the pews all stiff and formal." Um, but. The reason is, I want to kind of give you a, a stream of consciousness here a little bit. Um, in learning and meditating on Psalm 111, there is, in verse 10, it talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the reasons I really liked to focus on Psalm 111 is because you also find that in Proverbs. And if you're going to get into Proverbs and study Proverbs, it really comes back to that verse as kind of the key verse that none of us the Proverbs, yeah, they're kind of maybe nice sayings or something, but unless you have that as your basis, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that's all that they are really is just nice little sayings. They're, as we say, a proverb versus a capital P proverb from God. And laying in bed one night, I was sitting there looking at thinking about it, and the beginning of wisdom and you know, with an infant God, that wisdom really carries on and how little of the surface of that wisdom we scratch as human. And yet, that's really not 
the beginning. The beginning is the fear of the Lord. And in Sunday school this last week, we were talking about kind of in prelude to wisdom, what it means to fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord is, is, is about who do you put in place. A, a wise old man used to make this saying, and I've said it before. Um, there's, there's two things I know. There is a God, and I'm not him. Oh, he's awake to hear it too. So. See, the, the, the precept there is that you know your place, you know God's place. And the fear of the Lord addresses that. So that when we go into this world, we don't go out and go, well, gee, um, maybe I should do this or maybe I should do that. It's real simple. You know what God is. You know where he stands on things. And everything else falls out from that. What we do, how we dress, where we go, his guidance is right there. It's about a worldview. And yet, if we consider what it means to have the fear of the Lord, let's face it, the term fear, when we get outside of these four walls, people go, what, you're scared of God? Oh, that's right, this is the big God who's going to beat you up. <laughs> no, no, you really missed the point there. <laughs> you know, exact opposite of that. But if we go into words like, you know, the, the, the root... Um, kind of translated from the Hebrew and stuff, is, is you get into what awe is. And yet that word has also kind of been made derisive in some terms or overly common because we say, oh, it's awesome. Isn't that great? That's awesome. CJ, how, how often do you say awesome? You know, oh, that's awesome. A-W-S-E-O-M, right? That, he used to spell it at the YMCA. We say it so often. And we lose the impact of what awesome really means um, and, and in considering this there's a balance here because you can go from on one hand a stoic side of Christianity that says God is up here we're down here and this is how we come forward and sometimes let's, let's face it sometimes some of our, our especially our, our, our white Christian churches are very much that way. This is church. This is what we're supposed to do in church. We used to sing the doxology. Man, it sounded like everybody was dying when they used to sing that. I remember that as a kid. It was so formal. So, But this is what we did. And, and as you get into some of the churches who are more liturgical, it becomes almost pharisaical. And we become very stoic. And it's a religious process for us. On the other hand, there becomes an emotional side to it that is we're going to be falling down in the, in the, in the aisleways, jumping around, and we have to have that emotional up. We've got to get the emotional up. We've got to get the encouragement, right? We've got to get char charged up for church. Are you charged up? Are you char and it's nothing more than an emotional ride. And let's face it, as I say, facts stay the same. Emotions change. You find out that Keith ran over your son. You're upset. Now you find out that he was getting the rest of the kids out of there and he didn't know the son was behind the car and he was trying to get them away from the house that was going to collapse on him. Wow, it's a sad event rather than he's a murderer. 
our emotions change. And that's an extreme example, but our emotions change. Pregnant ladies, <laughs> how often do they change? <laughs> Sometimes rather rapidly, right? Uh, we can be moody, we can be up, down, but that's also something we have to watch for. And it's a balance between the stoic side and that emotional side. And if we want to get into discussing that awe about God, we have to look into, uh, I'll say, we kind of come to it in, in, if you come across and you see the police line and you see the police tape there, you know, you don't see the body, do you? You see the outline of the body. Hopefully the body's already gone by the time the tape's there, but you, you see the tape. And, and what I kind of want to do tonight is just kind of give you a, a look at the tape from the outside, kind of give some definitions to it without going through and saying, here's the full crime scene, but I want to point us a little bit and encourage us about what that awe is and what that awe would mean. Um, I want to look at a couple of different passages. Moses and Samuel, Habakkuk, and Peter. And there will be shrinking references as we go forward. But I wanted to start with Moses. And there's a a scene in Prince of Egypt um, that I want to show. We'll see if it works here otherwise. But if you'd like to turn to Exodus chapter 3 and start reading, we'll get into 4 through 18. Up from chapter 3 to 418. Um, and the video does take poetic license with some of it, and I'll address some of that. But there's an aspect that they draw on that I want to kind of touch on here. So. Here I am. Take the sandals from your feet. 
place on which you stand is holy ground. Who are you? I am that I am. I don't understand. I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. poetic license that is taken in the movie in fact Moses is called and then told to take off his shoes immediately and then there's the question of who who are you (laughs) I'm sorry burning bush you're more than I expect but who are you and if I'm supposed to go exactly how will they know I'm supposed to be the one that's in charge and you want me to go, wait a second, I'm supposed to be speaking for you, for these people? I'm slow of tongue. But when we read through 
in Genesis, it's sometimes very easy to skip over the fact that this is Moses talking with God through a burning bush. And I think that is carried off very well in the movie where they bring that back to the fact that he wasn't standing there having a conversation. Hi, Glenn, how are you? Good day today? Good, okay. This, yeah, for a change. <laughs> My basement can dry out. This is, this is Moses dealing with Yahweh, dealing with the Lord, and addressing him, and at one point even saying, okay, God, wait a second. You want me to do what? I, I, I can't. Look at my mouth. I can't do this. I mean, maybe my brother can do this. You know, call it. You know, have somebody else speak for me. Who made man? I mean, he brings it back. He tells him, I am that I am. And goes back to even enough to say, look, I made you. I made all men, okay? Let's understand that. And I like how Moses is up against the wall at one point, just kind of shaking. What would you do if you encountered God in that situation? Because I imagine Moses wasn't just casually standing there, okay, I'll kick off my sandals. I thought it was an interesting way how they did that. He, and he says who he is, and Moses is like, drop the staff. Okay, I'm obeying. You know? In fact, it's a little different, but it makes a point there of, this is God. And I'm coming as close as face-to-face as ever. And it's one of the longest passages we have pre-New Testament of God and man talking. There's give and take. There's logical flow. You know, this isn't, which is, I bring up the logical flow to point out that this isn't the the, the mysticism side of, oh, there's, there's more than just, we, we ignore logic and ration, rational thought and reason and just experience God. And we must be emotional and there's more to it than that. But even when God is speaking and talking about his being and who made man and his anger burned against Moses some, there is more to it because he's not talking in the sense of, hi, Keith, nice red shirt. Why can you wear that red shirt over in that pew over there? He's going, I made you. I've made everybody here. He's establishing a relationship, something more than you do with any object. It's something that we do somewhat with each other but is done much more fully and completely with God. And that's something that, if you're over on the Stoic side, is left out. Because that's where you can go through the motions without actually encountering God. Which is actually the same thing that happens on the emotional side. They go through the motion of emotion and still never get to God. We are complex creatures. And understanding that, and even understanding our boldness sometimes, if we look at Abraham, back in Genesis 18, discussing the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
What did Abraham do? He started bargaining with God. I mean, it's like, wow, that's... And he doesn't just say, all right, look, let's negotiate here. He's like, God, you are a holy God. You're a righteous God. Would you really destroy the righteous? And calls on him and calls on God's mercy and his love. And uses that to say, please, please don't do it this way. Even it works all the way down to just a few. Now, there's more there, and part of that is holy ground. I think that's something that if you're really trying to encounter God, and it's not a situation of, oh, I'm going to take my shoes off, therefore this is going to be holy ground. Don't get me wrong there. It's not a turnaround. But if you really want to come before a holy God, understand that holiness is fully through us, and we can't come before a holy God part way. Holiness extends throughout God's being. And when we come before God, we come before him entirely. So that if we come before him and say, well, this is fine, but I'm going to keep these things back. You're not coming before God. You're really holding back and going through motions, possibly emotions. That means you really have to give it over. It means you have to start with obedience. It means when God calls Moses, come. Abraham, go. Obedience is the first step. Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, does the same thing. He says, the first thing he hears is he hears what? Samuel. Yes? No, no, go back to bed. Three times. Finally, the older high priest says, "Um, that's God calling you. You need to just answer him. Tells him what to say. Now think about that. God speaks to him. God gives a lengthy discussion and tells him a variety of things. But Samuel's first answer is what? Here I am, Lord. I'm your servant. What do you want? He set his position up. The fear of the Lord is beginning in wisdom. He recognized, you're there. I'm here. I'm your servant. Let's go. What are we doing? Now, two noteworthy points on Samuel is also this. One of the ways you verify that if you're prone to hearing voices, you think it's God's leading, you're not sure, maybe it's a hunch, you're not sure if it's really God's leading, maybe you do hear it as sometimes occasionally as clearly as Samuel. That doesn't mean you go tripping off to the psychologist. If these two issues are true, one, what is said is true. None of Samuel's words fell to the ground. God does not speak falseness. Demons do. Also, there's a holiness. God will call you to holiness. Each action, he will call you to holiness. Some of his actions you may not understand. Abraham, sacrifice your child. 
Some people say, well, that's child sacrifice. That's, you know what? Abraham knew God's voice at that point. And that's probably the one exception in the whole Bible to prove the point. That God will call you to holiness. He's call, he will call you to action. And it may be very difficult, but it will be true and it will be holy. Now, in Habakkuk, if you want to flip there, or not, it's chapter 2. Habakkuk does something that we need to bear in mind as well. Even earlier when I said, you know, the next 10 days, be sensitive to the Spirit's leading, Habakkuk says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to, his, to this complaint. What was Habakkuk doing? In one word, what was he doing? Anyone? One word? I will stand at my watch. He was watching. He was, as the parable will tell us in the New Testament, he was not just going, oh, well, I'm going to go off and do my life and see if God encounters me or God comes to me or I'm going to watch for God's answer on this. I have lifted it up. I have prayed on it. And I'm going to watch for God to answer. His response down in 220 is this, but the Lord is in the holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Gives you an idea how to do the watch, doesn't it? And as the Lord answers, I think this is telling of Habakkuk and it's telling something for us and it's something that is kind of touched on in, in the video with Moses, but verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says, And I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. We understand very much the, the sermons that were spoken, what, 200 years ago? What it means to fall into the hands of an angry God. Habakkuk did some of that. And God was using him to tell the message. But Habakkuk realized something that even Job realized in Dutch's forces. How can I lie? I put my hand out. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, I will say no more. 42.6, God is asking him, it's continuous, and says this, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel with knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And what does he put himself at? Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, before we go, oh, Job's repenting of all his sin. Job's an upright, righteous man. To the point that God said he's an upright man. Now, I don't think God's going to say that. if It's not really true. Again, veracity. God is true. 
But there, Job realizes that, you know what? I'm coming before a holy God. He's up there. I'm down here. And I will give myself entirely to him. Now, Peter kind of does this in a different way. And I can relate more to Peter than I can Job, (laughs) very obviously. Um, In Luke chapter 5, 1 through 8, Peter was moved. Um, If you'd like to turn there. It's Luke chapter 5. Of course, my pages stick together now. One through eight says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake at Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, um, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their, bro- their partners and the other boats for them to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats, filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9 says that they were astonished. How much different than Job or Moses or Habakkuk? Somewhat even Samuel. Laying there outside of the Ark of the Covenant. For Samuel's laying. It's amazing to me. But even before they were astonished, they obeyed. They're fishermen. They're professional fishermen. They know this is not the time to catch fish. This is not when you go out and do this. And Jesus said, go out in the middle of the lake, let down your nets. What? Okay, Lord, you said it. I'm not really believing. Help me with my unbelief. But I'm going to do it. Through their obedience, God brought them from a here am I moment to an encounter that would transform them into full persons. People who would completely begin a relationship with God. God the Most High. Now, this is an entirely foreign relationship compared to most of what we have. Because most of what we have is, I'm here. This is over here. This is something separate. This is something different. Even as we relate to other people, we kind of get something of a relational idea. But when you address God, you address him fully. He knows you fully and wants to draw you in, wants you to understand him, to begin that process. Is it something we can ever do as finite creatures? No. But it's something that he opens up to us. Now, 
This is why we are called. God walked with Adam and Eve. Even as Christ walked with the disciples and then sent the comforter to be with us. It's not an emotional outbreak. It's not something that, you know, fickle and, and fades. Relationship grows. And it grows out of obedience. That relationship grows based on the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. No matter what we feel, no matter what we do, no matter how nervous Patty is tomorrow when she wakes up with a ventilator, God is there. He's there with her now. He's watching over court. And I'm sure he's calming Anthony. Now, whether we're as righteous as Job or as fully aware of our sins as Peter, we come to those moments. And what we do in those moments will impact our lives forever on how we relate to God, whether we actually relate to him or whether we just go through the motions on either end of the spectrum. You call out to Jesus, he will meet you. God rewards those who diligently seek him. In any nation, tribe, culture, he responds. That is the beginning of a glorious and blessed walk with the Lord. And I encourage you in the quiet times to really call out to Jesus for that relationship. Say, Lord, I don't want an emotional experience but Lord, I really want to come before you. But be ready for an answer when you do that. Let's close in prayer.